I'm Jasmine Falk Dickerson. Welcome to the podcast. Being a black police officer in America during these trying times comes with a great deal of societal controversy and responsibility. This is how my guest eloquently addressed his role in the community. He brings wisdom, compassion, and intellectual perspective to the pressing issues of racial injustice and the role of law enforcement officers. Today, I want you to meet Officer Elliot Edmonds. On the heels of so much racial um, unrest and injustice, the protests that have been going on all summer of 2020 and continue into the fall, the various murders and uh, horrific tragedies that have happened in the Black community, the rising of the Black Lives Matter movement, and the continued focus of politicians, policymakers, and everyday people on the importance of uh, recognizing the uh, tragic losses in the uh, Black communities and people of color. Um, I thought it would be really important to listen to the other side, to the law enforcement side. And I couldn't have picked a better guest to address this. Officer Elliot Edmonds is a police officer here in Olympia, Washington. He is a police officer on the campus of the Evergreen State College. He is a Black man. He uh, has always been a black man, but has been a police officer in the last decade or so. He was in the military prior to that. And so his perspective, I found really, really deeply um, enlightening, uh, reassuring, comforting, but also disturbing in the sense that it sheds light on some realities that uh, that that the law enforcement community suffer consequences of what is going on in the community that is meant to uh, bring light to um, the importance of racial injustice um, and breaking those barriers of the I guess the uh, the silence that has been going on for far too long. Um, but I think if you listen to what Officer Edmonds says, you will recognize that hostility and anger alone don't bring change. That while there's a role for that in society and it's important to hold on to your frustrations and your anger and your disappointments in order to shift and make changes, it's almost impossible to get there with that alone. And so I encourage you to listen with an open mind. I found it fascinating to uh, ask some of the questions that I asked and to especially hear some of the answers and the openness, the kind of the the complete um, welcoming of uh, questioning that I posed, um, the honesty of Officer Edmonds and his own personal perspective, not just his professional perspective, I think will really um, surprise some listeners especially those who are choosing not to listen to the other side. Uh, th there's no question that in society we need police officers to take care of parts of our societal living. Um, they need to protect people who need protection. And they also need to recognize that the responsibility of the badge is a heavy one. And uh, Officer Edmonds recognizes that. So I encourage you to listen with an open mind. Uh, I'm 
hoping and assuming that no one is in disagreement that black lives matter. I am hoping and assuming that everyone agrees that racial inequality and injustice has got to stop. And I'm also hoping and assuming that we are not looking at cancel culture um, under the lens of doing away with the important people in our society and the important members of our society who also happen to be law enforcement officers. So I invite you to listen to Officer Elliot Edmonds. Officer Edmonds, I am so, so, so excited to have you here. Uh, you and I have had the opportunity to talk a little bit um, in the past because we both share the space of the Evergreen State College as one of our um, joint spaces. But I'm really honored and thrilled to have you here to talk about some really important things that are happening in the world right now. So welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Wonderful. Okay. Well, um, so first of all, I'm going to ask you, uh, you work at the Evergreen State College, you're a police officer on campus. And right now with lockdown, everyone is at home, everyone is working remotely, but you guys are still there. You're on the job, you're doing your thing full time. And thank you for your service and for taking care of the community as well as the campus. What is it like to be on campus with hardly anyone there? Well, thanks for your support. Um, So right now, there, on a regular basis, there are not a lot of people on campus. There are still people on campus. There's still a number of students who are living in housing. There are still people who commute back and forth on various days into their office uh, to do whatever work they can't do from home. And so it's odd in that we think of campus as being empty, but really there's still people there. And because there are still people there, there's still a need for campus security. If there was no one there, we could just lock all the doors, chain them and say, all right, we're good. But instead, you know, we we are constantly responding to less severe issues around Mm -hmm. campus related to access or, um, you know, our our labs, lab one and lab two on campus are full of a lot of scientific equipment, some Mm -hmm. of which is in some ways, and I don't want to say dangerous, but there are precautions have to be taken. Sure. And so a lot of a lot of those issues still exist. Um, so we're responding to that. Recently, the bus system in Olympia, um, I say recently, maybe a month or so, mm-hmm. started running again, and it runs out to campus. So we still have people who are coming either through campus or to campus for whatever reason. So I stay somewhat busy not as busy as before by any means but uh, yeah I, I and still it's, do some stuff. right and it's probably a little more isolating because the police uh, force on campus is very very friendly and very kind of uh part of the community also of the campus the students know most of them the faculty certainly the staff and so there's a lot of kind of back and forth there's some visiting i know because i worked in admissions and i remember the times that you guys would stop by just to say hi and just to hang out and so that must be missing a little bit where you guys are a little more isolated in terms of what you can do and who you interact with so that must be a little hard yeah, it's in some ways it's very frustrating to not have people around. To be totally honest, when you say that we're part of the community, a lot of the times it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. And so not having people on campus in some ways is interesting in that I I miss having people on campus, 
I don't miss that level uh, of animosity sure. uh, that exists a lot of times because the campus exists in the real world. We exist in the real world. The things that happen in the real world affect us. And so dealing with that part of being a police officer on a college campus is not my favorite. Yeah. Wow. I'm so glad you already went there. And uh, I'm going to make a mental note to expand that conversation because I do have some questions mm -hmm. around that before we go into that, because I want to create the backdrop of who you are and your story. Um, I want to know a little bit about Elliot Edmonds, the child, where you grew up. Tell me a little bit about your parents, your family. And um, yeah, and then we'll take it from there because I have follow up questions to that as well. Well, way back a long time ago, uh, <laughs> I was born in Turnersville, New Jersey. Um, I had really, I, I had a magnificent childhood in my opinion. I, I look back on it. I actually was texting with my dad today uh, about how I viewed my childhood. And, and we moved around a lot. My dad was a, uh, a mark sales and marketing executive for an oil company. Mm -hmm. uh, he worked in the petroleum division. And so we lived in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Oklahoma, Texas. Wow. Um, circulated back and forth. I really got to see a lot of America before I ever left the house, before I ever, you know, turned 18, I had been, I want to say, I, I had been from the East Coast to the West Coast by the time I turned 18. Wow. Uh, recently, I say recently, like probably six or seven years ago, I finally hit Alaska and had been to all 50 states. No way. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it, it, it was like an odd accomplishment because the majority, the bulk of it, was before I ever turned 18 because my parents valued travel. They valued seeing the United States. Um, and so that was a, a great part of my childhood. After high school, I went to college uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, went to a small college there. Thought I was going to play basketball. Got sidetracked. Turned out I was neither as good nor as dedicated as I thought I was. Oh, wow. <laughs> You have the height going uh, for you, though. <laughs> right? I, I looked like a basketball player, but <laughs> there's this whole effort that you got to put into That's it. That's right. I really was not into it. <laughs> uh, so I got my bachelor's degree uh, in art history mm. in, in Ohio, and I went to work briefly at the Cleveland Museum of Art uh, because I graduated in 2001. And round about September, uh, arts funding kind of started being less of a priority for the United States. Mm-hmm. So um, I bounced around for a while. I went out to California, as young people are prone to do, to live with a buddy. Um, bounced around there, ended up down in Houston, uh, where my family was living at the time. Had some jobs there. I just really couldn't find any job that I felt passionate about or even remotely lukewarm about. Mm -hmm. I, I was just going, eh, is this really what I want to do with myself? Mm -hmm. and so in 2005, um, I thought about joining the army. Um, if I could go back when I was in college, I attended briefly a program with the United States Marine Corps where mm -hmm. you would go in the summer for training at the end of which you would be commissioned. Um, I had a relatively minor injury to my body and a major injury to my emotions oh. because the Marine Corps is really jarring yeah. and I was not prepared. 
So in 2005, I thought, all right, I'm going to go back to the military. I'll see if, you know, I really felt like I failed at the military. So I went to the Marine Corps recruiter. We talked it out. I was on my way to sign my paperwork. And as I walked up, the Army recruiter was standing outside smoking a cigarette, stopped, said hello. Um, basically, he told me, we'll give you a $10,000 bonus to do the same job. And I went, oh, really? <laughs> well, what? So, so as I was uh, signing my Army enlistment paperwork, the Marine Corps recruiter was looking for me. And I was kind of ducking, like, oh, I hope this guy didn't see me because <laughs> I just got bought off at the last minute by the United States Army. Wow. Yep. And so you joined so, the army. I joined the army in 2005. Um, it was, it was incredible. It, it's, it's always going to be one of the things that defines my life because when I joined the army in 2005, the conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan was well underway. Mm -hmm. um, one of the phrases that people use is it, it was still a shooting war back then. Mm -hmm. And I joined it having a college degree, studying art history, having a liberal arts education. I had studied all of these. I had, I had a really romanticized idea of it. Mm -hmm. I had read Hemingway. I had read war poets. I had all of these ideas about what it meant to participate in a major military conflict wow. that is a big part of your era. And over the next eight and a half years, I won't say I had those ideas shattered, but the reality of things is you can't conceptualize. It's one of those things that you can't know about until you're there. Right. And so for eight and a half years, I was in the army. I don't mean to make the army sound like it was a bad, bad thing in my life. It, it gave me everything that I have today. I met my wife in the army. Both of my children were born while I was in the army. I ended up in Washington because I was with the army. I did. Uh, I was, I was an average to maybe slightly above average soldier. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't John Rambo by any means, <laughs> um, but I did the job and the army kind of rewarded me for doing the job. It gave yeah. me the GI bill. It gave me sure. a VA loan. It enabled me to do a lot of things in my life. Once I got out of the army, I was in Washington. I got out in 2013 because I wasn't enjoying it anymore. Mm -hmm. I had become an artillery officer by then. I started out enlisted. I became an officer. I didn't really like that. Um, if by any chance Colonel Rory Crooks is listening to this, it's your fault, Rory. <laughs> <laughs> so I got out and I didn't know what to do with myself. I ended up working uh, on the railroad as is the most American experience. I've been working on wow. the railroad. Wow. I became train attendant and then I was a freight conductor. Um, and that was a good job. It was interesting. It was mm -hmm. something that I never thought in my life I would be a freight conductor. Um, but I got laid off as so often happens in life. Mm -hmm. And the freight yard in Tacoma is right next to uh, the Northwest detention center. And so as I was laid off, I had a wife and two children. I needed a job. I ended up working at the Northwest Detention Center um, mm -hmm. as a detention uh, guard. And I was there for about a year. And that was a tough job. It was tough. Mm -hmm. It reminded me 
in some ways of my time when I participated in the Marine Corps program because it was jarring emotionally mm-hmm. and I wasn't ready for that. Right. Physically, I could do the job. Intellectually, I could do the job. But emotionally, dealing day in and day out with the detainees, how I felt about policies and procedures in the larger world, having to reconcile those things in my mind was, was really heavy on me. Yeah. Um, I bet. At the time, I was also using the GI Bill to uh, get my MBA. And so I thought, if I just can hang in there, finish my MBA, uh, I'll go get some kind of business job and things should be fine. So let I me, thought I could hang in there. Let me, go I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you here before you jump into where you are today, because I have a few questions, a few follow-up questions there. Yep. So you you were, um, you had this wonderful, magnificent childhood. You had these wonderful parents that took you all over the place. You went to liberal arts school and studied art history. Like that's, I did not know mm-hmm. that about you. That's kind of fascinating to me. Yeah. So you had this really uh, sweet um, outlook on life to some extent. Mm-hmm. Let's just address real quick the fact that you are a black boy growing up in America during the time that you grew up. Was at the time life as tense and as overwhelming for a young black man as we can say it is today? You know, there's there's a level of awareness that I think in children today because of the internet, because of social media that we didn't have then. Um, when I was a child, my dad, uh, like, like I told you, was a, a, a sales and marketing executive for an oil company. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought my dad was, the, I thought my dad was the number one black man in America because I was aware intellectually of Hey, I know that racism is a thing Mm -hmm. uh, because my parents are from the South, because they literally lived through the civil rights movement. I knew that these things had happened. We participated in in, uh, some organizations, Jack and Jill. uh, uh, We attended black churches. My father and my mom um, are very high achieving people. Both Mm -hmm. of my parents have master's degrees. My family as a whole, um, we're, we are all, to be modest, fairly high achieving. All mm-hmm. of my, almost all my cousins have college degrees, mm-hmm. master's degrees. Um, I think there's a few of us who have had some trouble with the law, but nobody who, who has, you know, been convicted and served serious, mm-hmm. serious time um, that I can think of off the top of my head. So in your mind, in your mind, you had these amazing role models. You had the perfect American life, the American family. You had all these uh, aspirations to be the best that you can be because you had excellent role models and you had a sense of anything is achievable. So that did not get in the way, although your awareness of the fact that this country had issues with skin color and things like that, I'm sure, I mean, it doesn't matter how accomplished, how rich, how successful you are, you kind of have to know that that's a thing. So for you, it was more of a, an awareness, like you said, intellectually and recognizing that socially this was happening, but you didn't necessarily as a child suffer directly as your family um, had to struggle. It was maybe more on a social level, recognizing that there were differences because of skin color. Is that accurate to assess? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I, 
I always had this idea that there were obstacles out there, but as I watched my parents conduct themselves, my extended family, their friends, I never thought things were insurmountable. I, I Day in and day out, my parents interacted with other black intellectuals, other uh, uh, people of other races on what to me as a child seemed to be equal footing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it never, I can say, it, it never even occurred to me that there was something I couldn't do. There were going to be obstacles. There were going to be people who'd say I couldn't do it, right. but that they couldn't stop me. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I was Eddie and Londa's kid. They and, can't. And you said <laughs> that you, your parents interacted with intellectuals of every race. So you're, would, would it be fair to say that then because of your travels and because of your parents and, and kind of the social, um, atmosphere that they created is it fair to say then that you had a healthy interaction with people from all walks of life and all backgrounds or was the army Uh, your first exposure to that on a personal level kind of intensely no we had i had incidents i remember uh we moved to texas um the first time there was an incident uh i got into a fight with a kid He, he used a racial slur against me i lost the fight uh I st- I'm still sore about losing that fight. Uh, you lost it physically or you lost it because grownups interfered and said you can't? Physically, I, I, got, I got beat up. Oh, um, no. And I remember that being pretty significant in my mind. Sure. Um, I remember in, in first grade, I remember uh, we had like a first grade yearbook and somebody, it's one of the other kids, as we're all signing a yearbook, he, he took his little crayon or whatever and wrote blackie underneath my face what and i remember i went to the teacher and i said do you see what he wrote about me that's not okay you know i felt empowered to assert myself my whole life to say this isn't okay you can't treat me this way right and i remember the teacher being shocked and horrified and this other kid being admonished and and thinking to myself yeah that's how it's supposed to go and this People time you did. didn't beat him up. This time you chose a route that was a no. little more on your side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so you yeah. go to the army and in the army, uh, they're all brothers and sisters. They're all, you know, a family. Um, but again, also all walks. And that's that was going to be my next question. So from all walks of life. And I've heard time and time again that, oh, you know, when you go into the service, we are all one, we're all the same. But I can't help but think that that can't be true completely. I think either some people just want to believe that or um, were in a privileged position that that wasn't an issue for them. But I can't help but think there has to be issues and and incidences where you feel like there is um, there is something there that's not quite as wholesome as... Some make it sound. The army is a, the military in general is a goal driven organization. And one of the things I think the army, the military does a fantastic job of teaching you is accomplish your goal, regardless of your personal feelings, regardless of, you know, the nature of your interactions with others. If you and the person next to you, on a personal level, detest each other, the army doesn't care. The army wants you to accomplish the goal that it's given you. And so you learn as you progress through the army to compartmentalize or to uh, work around disliking people for any reason. Um, And that's certainly a skill. 
on a moral and emotional level? Is that like a great, great way of handling things? Mm -hmm. It has its drawbacks, Mm -hmm. but it is a way of, you know, achieving things and working through life. The people are not are not a switch. You can't flip a switch and say, I didn't like this person, but now I do like this. Right. So. So let me ask you this, then. Do you think from your experience and interacting with a lot of other law enforcement officers, do you feel like those who have had a military background training have better control once they become officers versus those who jump into the law enforcement field without a lot of that really disciplined training? I wouldn't say that. No. Um, Policing is like any job in some ways. You start the job and you're not going to be very good at it. You're learning how to do this job. The longer you do this job, the more skills you will gain, particularly for anyone who's ever worked in a customer service field. When you start the job, it's, you're going to be clumsy. You're going to be trying to figure out how do I work with people to achieve whatever goal it is, sales or service delivery, in this case, law enforcement. Mm-hmm. How do I work with people to get this done in the most efficient manner, sometimes because sometimes you want efficiency to get it done in the most caring manner because sometimes efficiency is not my goal i need to show some caring or compassion um sometimes it is in uh, i don't want to say a punitive manner but i can't think of a better way of saying it mm-hmm. sometimes you have to be for lack of a word, sometimes i got to lay down the law how do i do that in a way that is successful mm-hmm. and what does that success mean and all of these things are or as you progress through this job, like any job, you get different definitions of yeah. how how you've accomplished that. So let's just jump in then. Um, you left the army. You then um, worked with detention for a little while and then eventually s- kind of mm-hmm. settled on police officer. Yep. So, okay. Um, during the time that you uh, started to kind of get your your uh, vibe on as a police officer now, and as you're able to work with the community as well with your uh, colleagues, do you notice there's a difference in how you created a community for yourself within your profession in the army versus the law enforcement field? Were there more tensions, especially racially, in the army than there are in the police officer or law enforcement field? Can you draw some comparisons? I would say that in policing... And I don't want to, I don't want to pat policing on the back just because I'm a police officer. Sure. But what I found, uh, I like to tell people when I'm, I'm speaking publicly, I, I became a police officer when I was 36 years old. Prior to that, I was a black man the whole time. I totally understand people's apprehension towards dealing with the police. Um, I, I like to think that I'm a cool character. I, I, I can, I'm level-headed. The closest I've ever come to a panic attack was my first day at the police academy because I was sitting in the parking lot and my whole life, for one reason or the other, I've been avoiding police. And so now I was in this situation where I was like, all the police are here. (laughs) I'm about to go see all of the police at the same time. And uh, that's huge. It was pretty tough, but the things, you know, like I told you before, my childhood, my time in the army, all of these things had led up to that moment. And I, I was able to say, all right, I'm afraid. 
That's what's going on here. I am afraid to go in there. That's what I had to get over. That's amazing. That's so honest. I I got out of my car, kind of weak-kneed my way in there. And once I got there, like so many things in life, I found out, okay, all I got to do is get to the next task. What's the next thing that I have to do? We got to stand at attention. Cool. I know how to do that. I've been trained how to do that. All right. I got to say, sir, yes, sir. Cool. I know how to do that. Uh, all right. We're going to do some intellectual stuff. Cool. Uh, I've got a college education. Uh, cool. We're going to talk about, and to answer your, your question about race, one thing that really surprised me was how self-aware policing is about race being an issue. Really? Hmm. There is no shying away in any police organization that I've been exposed to um, from talking about race, bias, implicit, explicit bias, for a number of reasons. I like to think pragmatically, because if policing can't address racism, then I can't be successful at this job. Right. I have to be able to deal with this topic any police officer, we have to be able to deal with this or we won't be successful at this job. And so policing was much more self-aware than the military about race issues. So interesting. This is, uh, you know, the reason why I wanted to talk to you is because the world is going completely crazy. Um, It's all on fire. It's it's on fire. And I have to say, again, being married to someone who also is in law enforcement, I have an appreciation for law enforcement. And I'm hyper-liberal, so I have an appreciation for the anger and the frustration. I'm also multicultural, so I have, you know, uh, an affinity to marginalized groups. But the thing that really I, in this moment, I think is so important is to just a, calm down and really listen to one another, but B, also address the fact that, you know, what uh, Chris Rock said in one of his, in one of his stand-up shows where he said, there are no bad, there can be bad apples in lots of different jobs, but you cannot have a bad apple, apple in law enforcement, just like you can't have a bad apple as a pilot on the plane, because right. it's like, well, right. today our pilot doesn't feel like flying. He feels like crashing. It's like, he's just one of the bad apples. You can't do that. Certain jobs, you cannot have bad apples. And so yeah. while we acknowledge there are bad apples, for the most part, what you will bring to our listeners today, and certainly to me, is a, an awareness of listening, of understanding that goes beyond the immediate emotion of being angry and frustrated. Because you're as angry and frustrated about these crazy, crazy things that are happening. And so let's jump into that. This summer, besides the pandemic, we've also experienced the probably the first uh severe reaction in civil rights and racial injustice movements since the civil rights of the 1960s. Um, It all started with George Floyd's killing, Breonna Taylor's. And just today, as I was getting ready to talk to you, uh, in the news, Warren Wallace Jr., a, a, a young man who was absolutely mentally ill, mentally unstable. His family calls for medical attention. They called and begged for an ambulance to arrive on site, and yet police officers arrived, completely, you know, um, terrified of wh- how to deal with the situation. And so that's another tragedy that happened. I, I really would love to hear from you both, and I know you can't separate the two at this point. You can't separate being who you are and your profession. So with those two identities, can you talk to us about what's going on? You gave me kind of an outline before about what we were going to talk about today. And, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it. 
and trying to describe how could I encapsulate what it was like to be a black police officer right now. And the only word that, that, that came to mind was it's miserable. It's miserable. It's absolutely miserable. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it is so frustrating to see problems on all sides and try and, well, how do I explain it to this side? How do I explain it to that side? How do I talk to this person? How do I talk to that person? How do I uh, have credibility amongst the communities that I'm in? Um, There is, as a police officer, it's so hard sometimes to watch videos of incidents because you don't want a Monday morning quarterback. You watch these videos and sometimes you recognize, yep, that's, that's a training thing that I've experienced. This looks like maybe it's either a training thing or something that I don't know, but I can see that this officer and that officer are both doing the same thing. So maybe that's how they were taught. This portion of this interaction seems like, all right, well, What's going on with this guy? Is it an emotional thing? Is he angry? Like, what's that all about? Um, so all of these incidents that have happened, I've, I've been watching them just like you. And it's hard. It's hard to watch. It's frustrating to me in that every time I turn on the TV, it seems like Black people are being targeted and killed around the nation in some sort of of evil plan. And yet, as a police officer, intellectually, I know, I go, I know how many people I deal with on a day-to-day basis. And I work at a very small agency in a limited, you know, area. If I extrapolate that outwards, the number of people who come into contact with the police on a daily basis and simply walk away from that interaction fine is astronomical it's crazy how these incidents exist and are real but also statistically numerically however you want to look at it you're like you're most likely to be fine when you interact with the police statistically Mm -hmm. numerically Mm -hmm. But also, these things that are happening are real. I can't say right. this never happens. No, it happens. I, I've seen the videos too. I saw, you know, I saw George Floyd. I saw Breonna Taylor. I saw uh, Mr. Wallace. I saw uh, Ahmad Arbery. I saw um, the other gentleman in, in Georgia. And so it, it feels just stuck in the middle. Yeah. A lot of explaining. What's the most frustrating to me, particularly on campus, is this need to justify myself, to justify my existence. Especially on a college campus that is a liberal school where everyone Mm. is overly heated with uh, idealism and overly heated with uh, justice, uh, which is a wonderful thing. But at the same time, it, it can cloud your judgment to make things go forward in the right direction. I hear what you're saying. Agitation is important to get things started, but then you have to just take a breath and sit across, you know, the table and talk about it. Um, And what I'm hearing you say is that, and and correct me if I'm wrong, 
Actually, I'll phrase it more as a question so that I'll give you the opportunity to, to clarify that. Racism in this country is a thing. It's real. It's happening. Would it be legit to say that racism is something that's more present in the communities than it is in law enforcement? Would it be safe to say, well, again, let me rephrase it, actually. So there is racism in law enforcement as a as a general rule. Mm-hmm. But w- would it be safe to say that that the um, the attention that law enforcement as a racist institution is receiving is disproportionate to the racism that exists in the country and maybe in politics and in the systems and the policies? It's tough. It's tough for me to say. Um because what what we're doing right now is we're talking about policing as if the police are somehow separate from our country, right? Police officers are American citizens like everyone else. Right. And so whatever racism exists in the United States, it's going to exist in policing. It's also going to exist in healthcare. It's also going to it's going to exist in retail sales because the people who are in these professions are Americans. Right. They they are every bit as for lack of a better term guilty, every bit as for lack of a better term deserving uh, of shame or guilt as well as applause and and award because we I live here like everybody else. Right. When I leave work and get in my car I'm just a black man in America riding down the street. So what okay, when that's I'm, that's an excellent point. I wanted to ask you what does it feel like when you are wearing your uniform on campus? What does it feel like when you're in uniform off campus and what does it feel like when you're not wearing your uniform at all? There was a a really interesting incident that happened a couple months ago. I came into work one day. Um I don't wear my uniform into work. Uh, just walked in, looking fly because I'm stylish. <laughs> yes, and, you are. Uh, <laughs> uh, there were some students out chalking, protesting in front of the police department, and I walked over. I said, "Okay," and they said, "Yeah, you know, right on." And I said, "Okay, yeah, right on." <laughs> and then I walked inside, put my uniform on. And it just so happened that day, what a lot of people don't realize on campus at the Evergreen State College Police Department, the majority of people who work there are people of color. That's right. Yesterday, we were we were talking. There is only one white male who works at the Evergreen State College Police Department. Everybody else is either female or a person of color. So... I walked back out. There was a Puerto Rican officer there with me that day and another black officer. And we walked out and you could see it it was like watching someone's brain do a hard reset because (laughs) these students, it, it, it honestly seemed as if it had never occurred to them. Black people and brown people could be the police. That's right. What? How do I feel about it if I'm out here? in support of black lives uh, for, uh, uh, ostensibly adversarial with policing and then black lives walk out as police. No kidding. And as a black man in America, as a police officer in America, that is a really 
it's lacking in the conversation. Um, I like to, a thing that I like to point out in 2018 in the Pacific Northwest, just two years ago, the police chief for the Seattle Police Department, the University of Washington, Portland State University, and the Portland Police Bureau were all Black Americans. Wow. Seattle and Portland, the city police, were both headed by Black women. Wow. Amazing. Nobody, nobody seemed to care back then. Yeah. It was ignored largely. Two years later, all four of those people are gone for various reasons. Most recently, Carmen Best left under a cloud in Seattle that she was either pushed out or chose to leave. However you want to view it, she's not there. Uh, Danielle Outlaw was in Portland. She left. She's in Philadelphia now where we just saw those protests last night. Um, Donnell Tanksley left Portland State. I believe he's up in Blaine. He's in Washington somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, John Vinson left the University of Washington. Uh, I'm not sure where he's at now. But But what a tragedy and what a loss. Exactly. What What happens when these Black voices in leadership are ignored or when they present an opinion or a statement that is not the popular idea? Do we give agency to Black voices that don't tell us what we want to hear? And I don't have an answer for that. That's exactly what I was hoping we'd get to as we spoke today, because I get so frustrated from the uh, liberal racism that is out there, because there's this idea that if you are progressive, if you're liberal, if you're, you know, for justice, then all of your ideologies are in alignment with what's right. And that is as presumptuous as, you know, what they're fighting on the other side. And uh, talking about this so openly and so safely and so honestly is really crucial because especially in a situation where just you and I are talking back and forth and there's no uh, noise interfering with our conversation. Hopefully people are listening. One of the things that I thought was really um, frustrating for me on a personal level was when uh, Joe Biden uh, announced Kamala Harris as his running mate. And I'd been a supporter of Kamala Harris. I'm, I'm a huge fan of hers for a variety of reasons. Doesn't mean that I agree with all of her policies. Doesn't mean that I agree with everything she's done. But again, history changes and so do our choices. And in the midst of fighting for Black Lives and Black, uh, Black Lives Matter cause and for people of color, the outrage at the choice of Kamala Harris was mind-boggling to me. I was completely horrified and frustrated and angry. And I thought very, I thought very hypocritically of the people that were, you know, expressing these opinions. So. For you as a police officer, that's kind of a double whammy because you see that every day in your personal life and on the job where people are supposedly fighting for your rights to protect you as a black man in America. But yet the minute you put the uniform on, you become invisible as a black man. What are some of the ways that you have found yourself uh, dealing with this, both in taking care of yourself and also in making sure that you are? Because what a burden you must be carrying, right? This must be a burden in terms of feeling the pressure of having to represent multiple identities and then maybe being questioned constantly as the go-to person like I'm doing right here right now. And I thank you for doing that. But it must be a burden. And I apologize for for that kind of pressure. But it is so needed. How do you juggle those um, responsibilities with also taking care of yourself? You know, like I said earlier, 
about policing being self-aware. Um, that being one of the things that really shocked me when I was at the police academy. One of the lessons that they taught at the police academy was don't let all your friends be police officers. It's easy to retreat into, you know, some kind of echo chamber, some chamber of, hey, man, it's not, there's nothing wrong. It's not your fault. But I'm lucky in, in that I became a police officer late in life. So I already had kind of like a social structure structure before I became a police officer. And so I'm able to retain some perspective. And, you know, it, I don't want to say that being questioned is, is a burden. It, it's a responsibility. It's an obligation. Burden seems kind of, kind of negative. Mm-hmm. It, I feel like it's the right thing for me to do. Wow. You know, to have, when you have access to some body of knowledge or some viewpoint that other people may not have access to, it seems like you're obligated to help out, to help people understand and as much as you can. And so, you know, I, I enjoy talking about it. I enjoy discussing it. It's important to acknowledge that I can't change people's minds. I can't, uh, my goal is not to make people walk away from a conversation with me going, you know what I need to do is go out and just high five and hug every cop I see. No, again, they're, they're people I can say, honestly, I have met some cops who I did not like. Mm-hmm. They, he was a jerk. I didn't like him. He was arrogant or, or right. you know, he, he was a person and I'm a person and I did not like that person. Um, and the same is true so, for, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt real quick. The same is true mm-hmm. is for people and their backgrounds and origins. It's like all of a sudden now there's no uh, filter in being able to say we are judging people for lack of a better word or, or assessing people and our relationship or our connection to them based on what kind of person they are. It's like all of a sudden now all right. white people are bad and only people of color are good. And there are, you know, uh, endless, uh, uh, anecdotes to deconstruct that. And then it's kind of, and it's, it's racist to think that to begin with. I mean, that alone is a racist thought. Wouldn't you say? It, I would agree. It, it's, in a, in a dark way, it's humorous sometimes as a police officer, particularly in the Northwest. I go out to protests and I see an order of magnitude more Black Lives Matter signs than Black people. And I have people yelling at me and accusing me. And I think to myself, you have no idea who I am. I, you, I, I, I've been Black my whole life. Seriously. It's not a new thing to me. <laughs> I've, been, I've been Black in the South. I've been Black in the North. I've been to all 50 states. To, to see someone who believes that they have some sort of moral high ground to dictate to me what it means to be Black, what it means to be racist, what they feel that they have this authority over me in some way. And... There's no point in trying to discuss something with someone who's yelling at you. It's but you're there, not going to have a, 
a rational discussion then. No, but they're using the hashtag, so they know what they're talking about. You know, it's all about the hashtag. It doesn't matter what your experience for 40 plus years has been. It's all about the hashtag. Uh, and, and I'm not minimizing the importance of that work because that is so important and everything that's happening around the organization. And of course, Black Lives Matter. Very much so. Very mm-hmm. much so. But like you said, it's like when you do have an opportunity to sit here and talk to someone face to face. Now, in those protests that m- maybe you've either been around or you were uh, on the profession around, has anyone actually taken the time to step away from their anger mode or their, you know, protest mode, which again is important, but have they stepped aside and come to you and asked you some questions just rationally and calmly? Uh, no, no, that's, I don't expect that to happen. But it's because they see the uniform. It's because they see the uniform. It's because they are in that mode. They, they are in a protesting mode. They are in a protesting is kind of a double-edged thing, right? It, it's meant to bring some sort of political movement around, but it's also meant to be an expression of emotion. Whatever it is that we're protesting, whatever concept or policy or system that we're protesting has angered me so much that I'm willing to stand out in the street and, and yell at it. And that's a function of protest. That's an important function of protest to demonstrate that anger. But we're not going to be able to talk about it at the protest. We're not going to be able to, you know, we're not going to be able to get into a discussion of nuance in a protest environment. Right. There is so so many levels of nuance of of detail to discuss in these issues within the United States re- revolving around police brutality, revolving around racism, systemic racism, mass incarceration. There's so many levels of nuance, but at the protest level, everything gets distilled down to this thing is racist. There are too many people locked up. This police are too mean. And I try and step back. I try and communicate with other police officers. This is not the time to discuss. Yeah. As a police officer, as part of our profession, right now, our job is to hunker down and take it. Man, people are, are going to yell at you. Yeah, that's, that's that's tough. And and in a country that's so divided right now, right? I mean, it is an election week. Uh, mm-hmm. So much has been brewing in the last four to five years. It's a very, very uh, intense air to be breathing. And at the same time, there's a lot of misconception, a lot of, a lot of misinformation. And, you know, we can't rely on anything anymore. And I know that uh, law enforcement officers are supposed to practice bipartisanly like they are not supposed to be affiliated right they're not (laughs) supposed to be affiliated with any political party and yet there's this notion out in the community that all law enforcement are conservative that all law enforcement are republican or all law enforcement you know subscribe to that ticket and i know for a fact that that's not true um how is that particular ideology coming from the community uh, sensed and felt within the community of the law enforcement family? And also, how do you think police officers separate from their political views when they do the job? You know, in discussion with, with other officers, one of the things that we often we often talk about is that guy. Whatever mm-hmm. the most recent guy is, we go, 
because of that guy, yeah. now I gotta. I hear my know, husband and, say that too. Yeah. Yep. It's a formulaic conversation we have all the time. Because that guy did blank, 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 blank. Now I gotta blank, 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 blank. And so, like I said earlier, police officers are a member of the community like everyone else. They have opinions like everyone else. And some people, like every other community, are going to voice their opinions when and where they shouldn't. And in that instance, because that guy went on TikTok in his uniform and did whatever, (laughs) now I got (laughs) to deal with people accusing me of what he did. It's particularly frustrating when we're on, you know, we're in the West Coast of America. I'll see some guy on TikTok in South Carolina. He could not physically be further away from where we are. Seriously. But because of what he did on the internet, now I gotta wow. deal with people being frustrated here. And that's, it's, it's a modern problem that we're going to have in policing in every occupation, yep. you know, uh, Right now we're dealing with coronavirus and and you turn on the TV and they go, we found some doctor in some place who says that Trump is right. And now my wife is a she's in the medical field. Now she has to have that conversation, right? Because that guy went on TV and said this. Now I got to tell my patients this. Wow. Yeah. No kidding. And. Um, The fact that this is happening to all police officers is kind of a fact. And I want to ask you, because we talked a lot about your position, your personal experience, and also what it's like to be a black police officer in America today. What do you think, and and I'm not assuming that you would know what that feels like, but what do you think the burden is for white police officers? Because imagine being a white male police officer uh, nowadays. Um, Do you think that they're, well, yeah, what do you think? Uh, I can't speak for for white male police officers. I can't speak for white males. Um, I can tell you about the conversations I have with them. Yes. Um, because there, there are a lot of white men in America. Consequently, there are a lot of white men in policing. Right. Uh, and it's tough. Uh, it, it's a strange position to be in to say, you're like, I really feel bad for those guys because they can't do any good. They can be the most well-meaning. One of the officers who we recently had who left our department, he is, in my life experience, one of the kindest, most caring people I've met in my life, you know, all over America, all over the world. Wow. He finally left policing because he said, you can only tell me that I'm a bad person so many times before I either internalize it or I just leave. And, you know, and what is yet another example of like his good judgment, he didn't want to internalize that message. He didn't want to become what people said he was. So he chose to leave. He said, look, I'm going to take care of myself and take care of my family. I'm going to find some other occupation where I can contribute. But this abuse, I I don't want to take it anymore. And it's a loss. It's a loss to the community. It's a loss to the profession that people are not going to see or understand because it's one less white guy that's a police officer. And there's going to be people who think that's some sort of victory. And then I'm in the position of telling them like, no, that was not the guy that you wanted to lose. I'll help you find the guy that should leave. There you go. It's like, it's like any other job. We all know the guys 
to some degree who are like, that dude is not doing a good job for whatever reason, not necessarily he's behaving in overtly racist ways. It's like any other job we go, man, that guy's lazy. That guy doesn't write good reports. That guy doesn't do. So we'll help you root out people who we believe shouldn't be in this profession. But if we're making an arbitrary judgment, white guys are the problem. Like, mm, there's a level of nuance here that we need to discuss that we're not going to get to in some large public protest way. Um, are you familiar with Malcolm Gladwell? I'm sure you are. Mm-hmm. He had in one of his books, he, he wrote about a bell curve at the LAPD. They, they did some research into problematic policing, That's police right. brutality. And what they found was the majority of officers did fine. They behaved appropriately. There was a smaller uh, uh, percentage who were doing wrong. And yet we were taking those actions of that small percentage and blanket policy over to these people who were doing fine. Well, that's not going to accomplish what it is that you want. We're, use, we're directing our energies in the wrong way. That's right. And I see that in policing. Uh, one thing that we've seen at protests, there's a difference between protesters and rioters. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, yeah. Thank you for and mentioning when you, that. When you go to a protest, what intellectually you understand is the majority of these people here are here to protest and voice their displeasure. There's a minority group within this that are are interested in material gain, interested in property damage, et cetera, et cetera. Chaos. And as I look out across the crowd, I'm unable to discern who is what right now. I have to wait and observe their actions in order to figure that out. And in some kind of like strange blind spot, people don't realize that's the exact description of policing. Hmm. The majority of police officers are out here doing the right thing. They're out here with good intentions. There's a minority group within there who are, for whatever reason, not doing the right thing. As you look out across policing, you can't see which one is which. You have to observe their actions in order to to figure it out. And the fact that we as a nation can't see that these two groups line up almost exactly is some kind of intellectual blind spot we can't blanket policy about protests because that wouldn't make any sense we can't say nobody can protest right that's not right yeah and now we're in this situation of defund these police departments well there's a level of nuance here what does that mean a lot of people are taking that to mean get rid of police well we can't just get rid of police no that's not the right answer and so Uh, that nuanced discussion is tough to have. Yeah, no, you answered that brilliantly. I really think that, I really hope people are listening because the majority of the people that I talk to are so mad at the police that it's like, nope, you know, all cops. And then the other side, which are, you know, part of the military family or part of the law enforcement community, they're like, no, you know, these looters, these protesters, it's so divided. And it's like, why can't we be somewhere in the middle where we're paying attention to what's important? And like you said, you know, weeding out what needs to be redone and taken care of. And one of the ways I think that, um, you know, especially men like you who are family men and have, you know, families and wives and children and 
you know, more people that rely on you than just the community. How has this been for you as a father? Um, how do you speak to your children? What, what? How does that conversation happen at home when it's just you as a black family? You know, my children are of mixed race. Um, Which must be even harder, maybe? In some ways. Um, my wife was in the army with me. We, you know, you love who you love. And race is not a, a big issue in our in our household. Um, but we exist in the real world, right? Right. So... Most recently in Tacoma, there were some some protest marches, and and my wife wanted to be part of that. My kids wanted to be part of that, and it's good that they did, right? Uh, in some ways, I wish that I could go, mm-hmm. but I live in the real world. I had to use my head and go. If I go to these these events, and somehow someone knows that I'm a police officer, how is that going to be viewed? I don't want to, you know, there's that movie Casino with Joe Pesci and a strange metaphor here where he has a scene where he says, what are you doing on TV anyways? You don't belong on TV. And that's how I feel about, you know, my role in policing. I don't want to end up, no police officer wants to end up the subject of, of news coverage. No police officer wants to end up the subject of internet, you know, focus. A meme, a TikTok. A meme. Yep. I don't want to be because I got to live and go to work the next day and, and wonder, is this person, did they see me? Are they mad at me because of this thing that they saw me at this or that thing, you know, and as a, as a father, I want to be able to go out with my kids and, and walk down the street and enjoy my community without wondering like, uh, is there, is there going to be some kind of, Someone going to yell something at me? Is someone going to holler at me in front of my kids? Um, so they go and they, and, and I, I appreciate that you uh, support that they need to do this, even though you can't participate. Is there a part of them that worries about you because of your job and because of obviously who you are? Yeah, I'm sure to some degree. Um, my wife was in the army with me. My wife was in the uh, in the army above me. She worked wow. at a higher level than I did, so I think she's pretty used to the idea of me, you know, going out and doing what I do. Um, my kids, uh, we have a pretty good routine. I, I try and call and, and t- say good night to them every night. Again, that officer that I talked about earlier, who who left policing, he was one of my training officers, and he said. This job is tough on your family. Working at night is always going to be difficult. Let's take some time. Let's build some time in where you can still be part of your family. And I, I appreciate that he did that. That's something that I hope to take forward in my career and dealing with other officers. Um, it's it's a tough job for your family. I'm sure you know. Yeah. Uh, because again you exist in the real world. You, you are seeing the things that are on LCs and how do you tell your kids, Hey, this thing that you see on TV, it's real and it's, it's bad. It's not good. And people are going to be mad in general at police. They may be mad at me 
they may be mad for some weird reason at you for having me as a father, which is something that, you know, you can't do anything about. How do you tell a child people are going to be mad at you and victimize you and you can't do anything about it? That's policing. That's being a person of color. That's being LGBTQ, whatever it is. It's tough as a parent across all of these things. You worry about your kids. Right. And again, in that weird kind of intellectual blind spot, all of these communities seem to not realize that the other communities feel the same way. That's right. Yeah. I'm going to end here with one question, which is a very important question for me, because I want to make sure that you are, you know, taking care of yourself. Um, And then after my last question, I'm going to play a quick rapid fire session with you real quick. But before that, I want to ask you, how does Officer Edmonds, how does Elliot Edmonds take care of himself? What do you what do you do that helps you equalize the tension that is thrown at you every day in your job or in society because of who you are, uh, the you know, the responsibilities of being a father? How do you take care of yourself? And it, it, one of the reasons I was so excited when you reached out about this this podcast is that one of the things that I like to do is, is I try and talk it out. I love having conversations on a small basis with other people because I'm figuring things out too. Uh, you know, I, I've been a police officer for four going on five years now. So by no means, it's not like I'm some grizzled veteran who has all the answers. Um, my kids are young. And so I'm figuring out parenting, right? Like I, I, I don't have all the answers. I'm trying my best as we all are, but I'm, I'm conscious enough to know there may be a better way. I might not be doing it right. Let me bounce these ideas off of other people. And because, you know, I wish I could say intentionally, I have a wide variety of viewpoints in my life, but like it just worked out that way. I was accepting of people that came. I say accepting as much as, uh, as I can be. Sure. I'm, <laughs> I have my faults and flaws too. Um, my biases as much as anyone else. Sure. But bouncing ideas off of other people and talking it out and being able to explore nuance, being able to explore below the surface of an idea is gratifying to me because I like to go to bed with a clear head at least and say, look, even if I didn't figure it out, I made an honest effort to try and do better, to try and figure out this or that problem. Um, So that's that's it. Just talking it out is the biggest thing for me. Yeah. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today and just taking the time of thoughtfully going through these um, issues step by step, being really generous and kind and compassionate towards everyone that's involved, whether it's the angry protesters, whether, whether it's the white cop, whether it's the victims, families, just the fact that you took the time to step by step um, with deep appreciation, uh, express your, again, your generous feelings about the importance of hearing each other out and also of uh, pausing for a minute and thinking about what all the angles involved may be reflecting on was uh, a gift, I think, that unfortunately many of us are uh, 
uh, either deaf to or blind to right now because we're so passionate about whatever cause or whichever side we we stand on. And so I really, really hope people are paying attention and listening. And I thank you so much for your service, first of all, in the military, for your service in law enforcement and for taking care of Evergreen, you know, my campus uh, and, you know, and all the students and staff and faculty. You are a phenomenal human being. And I will say this. Uh, what drew me to you from the first time we ever met was just your kind and very calm and compassionate demeanor, which again is, you know, common just from the human standpoint. But officers tend to have a little bit of a stoic vibe and tend to have a little bit of a guarded vibe because they have to protect themselves. And even though you had definitely the vibe that said, I am to receive respect, there was a really sweet and genuine, friendly, open disposition. Uh, and I think that's probably the key to your success, Officer Edmonds. I really, really believe that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for your support. Of course. All right. Ready? I'm going to ask I'm you a question. First, okay. First question. First question. Answer that comes to mind, and we'll keep going. So, day swing or graveyard shift? Swing shift. Okay. <laughs> your hobby? I'm a boxing uh, a judge. Uh, I like watching boxing. Oh, wow. Nice. If not Washington State, what state would you be living in? Virginia. Hmm. Favorite food or dish or cuisine? Uh, popsicles. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, what genre of music do you listen to the most? Ooh. Um... Probably electronic music the most. Really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's good stuff. It keeps you going. Um, do you have Do you have pets? My wife has pets and my kids have pets. Oh, you don't? <laughs> I don't have any pets. Does the family have a pet? We have a, we got a three-legged dog and we just got a tortoise. Oh, oh that's so sweet. Um, okay, favorite place you visited. Now, you did tell me you visited all 50 states, but it can be domestic or foreign. Favorite place you've ever been to? Valencia, Spain. It's Ooh. the best. Everyone should go there. Wow. I've been to various places in Spain, but not Valencia. That's wonderful. Um, do you play an instrument? I play guitar extremely poorly. But you play guitar, so don't add the extremely poorly. You play guitar. Come on. <laughs> uh, if not law enforcement, what? I have no earthly idea. Really? Uh, uh, I worked in arts. I worked in transportation. I worked in the military. I worked in law enforcement. I worked in sales. I, I have no idea. So what I'm hearing you, but what I'm hearing you say, maybe right now, since you haven't had a quick answer to that, it may mean that you're happy where you are and you believe that you are where you need to be, even with all the challenges. But you are where you need That's to a, be. I would agree. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Here's the last question, and it's the one that everyone gets asked. It's the informal survey that my sons and I are performing. Um, pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Not on my pizza. Thank you. All right. <laughs> you are aligning with your Italian brothers and sisters because pizza does not, does not accept pineapple on it. This was absolutely enlightening. It was um, encouraging. It was so refreshing, for lack of a better word, but it really was refreshing to finally be able to listen to these important conversations without kind of the tension and hostility and frustration with what's going on, especially today as we wake up to news of more of these tragedies happening. I really thank you for your time. I look forward to saying that, hey, I'll see you on campus, fist bump or even a hug. Uh, later. Yeah, you're, you're wonderful. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot.
This podcast is produced and recorded by Dante Falk. Edited and mixed by Eros Falk. Original music by Dante and Eros Falk. Recorded in Olympia, Washington at Casa Nostra Studios. Visit the website, jasminefalkdickerson.com. Ciao for now. Thank you.